Good morning, everyone. So good to be back with you. Many of you know that uh, always the first week of the year I do something I've been doing for 20 plus years now. Um, it's hard to do sometimes, but every time I do it, I come back just refreshed, renewed, ready to go. I always take uh, the first week of the year, I get away and I have a prayer and a planning retreat. So I get away by myself for a few days and just really seek the Lord and just try to just make sense of, of what he's doing in my life, what he's saying to me, uh, just thinking about 2022 and then thinking about the, this coming year. And so it's just been a great, great time away. Uh, man, Pastor Brian and Pastor Keith did a great job kicking off this new series in Mark. So excited about uh, this new study. Um, as I spent some time away, many of you know that when I get away, I have this little tool that I use. Uh, every year, I've been doing it for over 20 years now, and it's called a timeline. And uh, many of you have been through the Focus Living Retreat, which we're going to, by the way, going to have at the end of um, February. Uh, so you may want to sign up for that. Just a great time. We have this little tool that we do during the retreat, and I do it every year now. And the little tool is called a timeline. A post-it <clears throat> note, <clears throat> excuse me, timeline. And so what I do is... Uh, I do this for several reasons. One, it helps me look back and really begin to see how God's been at work in my life through the year. It really helps me also to kind of extract some lessons that God has been trying to teach me as I look back. Many of you have done this. I know we've done this with youth and adults, the post-it note timeline. This is for 2022, a Rick Williams version right here. Um, and as many of you know, if you've done this before, you kind of divide up the time, which in this case was 2022, uh, in different segments. But you always want to look for how God's been at work in your life through people, circumstances, and events. And you really want to look at um, some of the, the positive things that God has been doing. But also some of the painful things. And the painful things are always paint post-it notes. And so uh, what I've discovered is this is often in the paint post-it notes that we really are able to discern some of the greatest lessons God is trying to teach us. You've heard this before, but it's so true. A God never wastes a hurt. But we sometimes do. God wants to use probably your greatest hurt in your life and in my life to make it our greatest ministry to others. And so this, this year, as I look through my post-it note timeline, there were there were several pink post-it notes that stood out to me, uh, namely that, um, that several of, of some people close to me had passed away. And the thing that I noticed was um, they were younger than me. And it really got me thinking, you know, it's just, it's hard sometimes because uh, you, you really think that you're younger than you really are. And I was reminded of Psalm 90:12 as I looked at the post-it notes and I thought about my life. And I'm reminded of, how, of Moses' prayer in Psalm 90, verse 12. His prayer is this. Teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. So one of my biggest takeaways for 2022 is simply this. To realize the brevity of my life and make it count for Jesus. As I think about that, I think about what we're going through right now with, with Mark and just this incredible journey that we're going to take together. And having said all that, I always try to pick a word also 
that a word of the year. How many of you have a word of the year? You, you choose a word to really kind of focus you for the year. And so for me, the word of the year is follow. I want to follow Jesus more closely this year. Now, in life, we follow a lot of things. Some of us follow sports teams. Like for me, for example, I follow Ohio State football. I follow the Steelers in the NFL. I follow UK basketball. It's not been a good year for Rick Williams as far as following sports teams. Um, we follow others. We follow people on social media, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff. We, we follow people. And sometimes we follow our heart. We need to be careful who we follow. In an Indiana cemetery, there's a tombstone that is over 100 years old, which bears the following epitaph. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. A passerby read those words and underneath scratched this response. To follow you, I'll not consent until I know which way you went. <laughs> it's really important to know who you follow. I want to follow Jesus this year more closely than ever before. So I'm excited as we, as we go through the book of Mark. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, take 15, 16 weeks, and just walk through the gospel of Mark. And as Pastor Pete, uh, Keith preached in, in chapter 2, and then Pastor Brian preached in chapter 1, it's just incredible as we just week by week by week really begin to, to gain insight from the gospel of Mark. The message is simple. You can really summarize the gospel of Mark in two words. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. For me, the way I like to learn is from macro to micro. I like to kind of see the big picture before I dive in. So with the book of Mark, what I've done is I've kind of taken a glance at a couple of charts. The first one is this. It's a, a, a chart, an overview of all the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many of you know this, some of you may not know this, but with each writer of each Gospel, they portray Jesus in a different way. So for Matthew, he portrays Jesus as king. As Mark, he portrays Jesus as servant. As Luke, he portrays Jesus as the perfect man. And John portrays Jesus as the son of God. Matthew writes to the Jews. Mark writes to the Romans. Luke writes to the Greeks. And John writes to the world. Notice the key words in each one of the Gospels. For Matthew, it's fulfilled, fulfilling the prophecies. Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the kingdom. For Mark, the word is, the key word is immediately. Mark is a gospel of action. Luke, the key words would be son of man. And then for John, the key word would be believe. As we kind of zero in a little bit more now on a mark, I want you to look at this next chart. Because as we come to the book of Mark, we see this next chart. If we can, there we go. You can see that the author is John Mark. As Pastor Brian mentioned the first week, he was heavily influenced by Peter. John Mark, who wrote Mark, the Gospel of Mark, he got his material, his the eyewitnesses' accounts from Peter. It was written, it wasn't written, it was around the time of 29 to 33 AD. It was written probably in the 50s, 
50 AD. But what I want you to see is this. As you take a big picture look at the Gospel of Mark, it's about two things. It's about the fact that Jesus came as a servant and Jesus came as a sacrifice for our sins. He came as a living example. He came as a dying Savior. So with that, I want to jump in and take my turn at the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles, look at Mark chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And once you find Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, I want to encourage you to stand with me as we read Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 as I read this. Please stand with me. Mark chapter 3. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the eyewitness account of Peter who relayed this to, to Mark. We thank you, Lord, for the way your spirit guided Mark to write these words. And so now, Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide our hearts today as we look at these words. Use these words in our hearts and lives to shape us and help us to follow you more closely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, as we, as we think about the gospel of Mark, we're we're going to do something really cool this, this, uh, this year with Mark. There are at least three different tools we've got to help us walk through the Gospel of Mark. Some of you got the, uh, the journal. I hope you're taking advantage of the journal. You can pick one of those up in the, in the uh, concourse. But the journal is just simply, it's a scripture notebook. And so you've got scripture on one page, and you've got a place for your notes on the other page. So what I've been doing with this is, I've really just been trying to uh, listen to each week's message so far and write down some, capture some things God's speaking to me about. But then also, um, I've also been identifying what I call soundtracks. I'm reading this book right now called Soundtracks. And the, the premise of it is this, that we all have these soundtracks in our mind. We talk to ourselves more than anyone else. If you don't believe me, look at Psalm 42. David talks to himself. Oh, soul, why are you so discouraged? Why are you so disappointed? We all talk to ourselves. And we have these soundtracks in our head. In fact, John Acuff from the book Soundtracks said this. If you listen to any thought long enough, it becomes a part of your personal playlist. So for this year, the way I'm going to use this journal, for every chapter in Mark, 
I'm going to try to capture a soundtrack for my life. A thought, a healthy thought, a biblical thought that I really want to be thinking about and meditating on as the days go by. Can you imagine what would happen if each one of us were able to identify a soundtrack, healthy biblical thought from each chapter of Mark? The difference that would make in our lives? For example, in Mark chapter 1, my soundtrack is simply this. Following Jesus means fishing for Jesus. In other words, um, I need, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I'm going to be fishing. That's what Jesus called them to do in chapter 1. In chapter 2, the soundtrack that I have, that I've captured, is simply this. Like Pastor Keith said last week, I want to make room in my heart for Jesus to be the center of my life. As we come to chapter 3 today, there's a, a soundtrack that, that I've written down as I've worked through it this week. And here's my soundtrack for Mark chapter 3. In fact, this is the soundtrack for my life for 2023. You may want to borrow it and use it. It's, feel free to do that. But I think this soundtrack, this thought, I think it really captures the gospel of Mark. I want you to write it down. The core soundtrack is simply this. The call to follow Jesus is a call to live and love like Jesus. The call to follow Jesus is a call to live and love like Jesus. When Jesus invited a group of first century Jewish fishermen to follow him, he didn't mean let's just keep in touch. He literally meant come with me right now. Live as I live. Learn how to live a life of faith by watching me. So in Mark chapter 3, as you take your notes, we find an example of what it means to live and love like Jesus. What it means to, to follow Jesus. If you're taking notes, the first thing it means is this. If you're going to live and love like Jesus... We must live with conviction. Because as we look at the life of Jesus, very clearly in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we see the conviction of Jesus. A couple of words I want you to underline as we work through Mark chapter 3. Again, another time, verse 1, he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some would say that shriveled hand is a, is a withered hand or a paralyzed hand or a deformed hand. It's a hand that stands out and he's, he's looked down upon because many would say, well, you sinned because of that shriveled hand. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him. Underline that word watched. So some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. This, this man with the withered hand. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. You know, as you read these three verses, it's really important to kind of put this together. Here we see the conviction of Jesus in spite of being contested and criticized by the religious leaders. In Mark chapter 2, last week, there are four occasions that builds up to this fifth 
incident where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are coming at Jesus with everything. They criticize him in Mark chapter 2 for claiming to forgive sins in verse 5. They criticize him for befriending sinners in verse 16 of chapter 2. They criticize him for not fasting like John the Baptist's disciples fasted, verse 18. And in verse 24, they, they criticized him for working in order to eat on the Sabbath. And now we come to Mark chapter 3, and we see a fifth confrontation. Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Let me just stop and say this. They have a, a faulty belief about the Sabbath, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, kind of like we do today. Many would say that the, the Sabbath is kind of this, this, this rule that's in place so that we won't have any fun. It's a burden laid upon us. That's not what God had in mind with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be a benefit. It was to be a blessing. It was to be a time of rest. And yet the Pharisees are really trying to make a big deal about the Sabbath. And they're trying to lay burden, more burdens on people. It takes place in Capernaum. In the synagogue, I watched the message last week online. I love the picture that Pastor Keith put up when we went to Israel of, of the synagogue. And you could see from the picture that Pastor Keith, how close the synagogue was to where Peter's house was. And oftentimes, Jesus would stay in Peter's house a lot. And so it was that close. So all of this in Mark chapter 3 is happening at the synagogue. And as I thought about this, I thought, He's there that day because it's the Sabbath day, and he's, he's a good Jew. Jesus is. That's what you do as a good Jew. Like a good Baptist, you, you show up on Sunday morning. Uh, as a good Jew, you would, you would show up on Saturday, the Sabbath. That's where Jesus was. He was right where he belonged. He was there for the right reason. There's a man with a withered hand, and he's looking for help and hope. The Pharisees were there too, but they were not there to find God they were there to find fault. And I think if we're not careful, we can be modern-day Pharisees. We're always looking out at somebody else and always pointing at the other person and always criticizing the other person. They were looking for a reason to drop the hammer on Jesus. Verse 2 says they watched him closely. You know, as I looked at several commentaries in the Greek language, that word for watched means this, to look closely, to observe intently. It's like a suspicious customer watching a shady merchant count out money or a watchman on a tower just focused. And it indicates what they're doing. They're watching and they're waiting. They're ready to pounce on Jesus. That's what Pharisees do. They're always looking for someone to mess up, foul up, do the wrong thing. I've said this several times before. But I've been in and around legalistic people and churches. And there's nothing, nothing more disappointing or devastating or deflating than legalism. You say, well, what is legalism? Someone said this, that legalism is when you turn your divine preferences into divine principles. 
Legalism is when you judge people by whether or not they live up to your standards. It's another way of putting it here, but legalists put tradition above truth. And when you run into legalism, man, there's no joy. There's no joy in the synagogue in Mark chapter 3 because these legalists are really trying to, they're watching, they're ready to pounce on Jesus. One sure sign you're a legalist or I'm a legalist or you run into a legalist is when you're always looking for what is wrong in someone else's life so you can judge them instead of looking for what is right in a person's life and encourage them. Legalists nitpick, judge, and criticize. And when you become a legalist, man, it's all about you and it's no longer about God. Notice the conviction of Jesus in verse 3. They're watching him. All these legalists, they're watching him. They're ready to pounce on him. Notice what he does. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Why does he do that? It's a good question. I think for one reason is he wants to be out in the open with his conviction. It's always right to do what is good. And he wants everybody to see that what is good on this Sabbath day is to heal this man. His conviction is to do what is right and good and godly. He does not cower in fear to the Pharisees. He openly addresses the man with the withered hand and his need, and he helps them. One of the convictions that we need to have as, as followers of Christ is this, and this is a tough one. But the conviction needs to be this. I'm going to do right regardless of the consequences. I'm going to do what's right and what's good regardless of the consequences. That's the conviction of Jesus here. We need to put God first and let the chips fall where they may. I can't tell you how many times I've counseled people with that counsel. After we've talked for a little bit, I just finally say, well, you know, you just need to do what God is telling you to do. And you let the chips fall where they may. Here's what I want you to write down this morning. As we live with conviction, it means this. That it means that we prioritize God above religion. We prioritize God above religion. It's been said that the difference between religion and Christianity is this. Religion is about what others want from you. Christianity is about what God wants for you. Religion is all about rules and requirements and regulations and rituals. Christianity is all about a relationship with Jesus who is about goodness and grace. I was listening to a podcast a few months ago, and one of my favorite authors, Philip Yancey, great, great author. If you've never read any of his books, would be a great author to dive into in 2023. He talks a lot about suffering. But in this podcast, he was kind of telling his life story. And it was very compelling but because he, he, he talked about growing up in a southern town in a very legalistic church, in a very legalistic family. And he talked about how he was wounded and how he was scarred by just some of the very extreme legalism in his life. He writes in one of his books that Jesus, as he began to study the life of Jesus, he wrote this. He said, Jesus reserved his hardest 
words for the hidden sins of hypocrisy, pride, greed, and legalism. You see, what Philip Yancey is saying is this, that when you look at the life of Jesus, when you look at the gospel of Mark, you're going to see this conviction of Jesus that's always to do what is right and what is good and what is for the glory of God. But you're going to see the polar opposite. You're going to see Pharisees. You're going to see hypocrisy. And they put religion above God. You know, as we think about this, it's really important. This first thing that I want you to get is if we're going to follow Jesus in 2023, it's going to mean living with conviction. It's going to mean prioritizing God above religion. There's a second thing I see about following Jesus in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. First of all, we see the conviction of Jesus, but when we come to verse 4, we see the, the compassion of Jesus. As we look at him, as we kind of follow him in this story, we see the conviction of Jesus, but we also see the compassion of Jesus. Jesus asked the, the greatest question, perhaps in the Bible. I mean, you talk about a diagnostic question. You talk about a powerful, penetrating question. You find it in verse 4. Notice what he asked. Then Jesus asked them, this is the Pharisees, the religious leaders all gathered, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? I love the last part of verse 4. You see what it says? But they remained silent. You see what's happening here? All eyes are on Jesus, and he asked this incredible question. It's a question that leaves no room, no wiggle room, no middle ground. The question calls for a decision to land on the side of good or harm, to land on the side of saving life or killing. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious, but the Pharisees are silent. Jesus took the opportunity to correct their lack of compassion for others. Chuck Swindoll in his commentary writes this. He says, Jesus could have chosen at least three options when it came to healing this man. Number one, first, he could have delayed the healing until after sundown. By doing that, he wouldn't offend anybody. He could have chosen this, because, this way because the man's condition wasn't terminal, so he could have delayed the healing. Option two, Jesus could have whispered to the man, meet me by the seashore this afternoon when we're all alone, and I'll do this, this secret healing for you. In other words, he could have compromised. The third option was this, to take a stand against the critics then and there. Compassion always takes a stand. Compassion's not soft. Compassion has a backbone. Compassion is doing what is right, regardless of what others say. I want you to know something about this question. This question really hit them hard. They were silent because Jesus is challenging them to change, to challenge them to quit using people as pawns. You see what's happening here? Jesus sees the man with the withered hand with compassion. The religious leaders see the man with a withered hand as a pawn in their little game to accuse Jesus. 
Jesus challenges them to speak up, to quit being silent about sin. But they remained silent. Why did they remain silent? Here's what I think. Deep down inside, I think they knew what Jesus was saying was right. But they were so steeped in tradition and religion, they, they could not. They could not answer with the obvious answer. You see, legalism blinds us with ridiculous laws, with ridiculous rules. It's been a while back, but I, I came across this article, it's probably 20 years ago, of, of some odd laws still in place in little towns across America. Here are a few of them. In Honey Creek, Iowa, no one is permitted to carry a slingshot to church except the policeman. Uh, no citizen in Lee Creek, Arkansas, is allowed to attend church in any red-colored garment. Do we have red on today? No. Uh, swinging a yo-yo in church or anywhere in public on the Sabbath is prohibited in Studley, Virginia. I think this is the best one. Turtle races are not permitted within 100 yards of a local church in any time in Slaughter, Louisiana. These are ridiculous, odd laws. I hope they're still not in the books, but at one time, these were laws in little towns. Sometimes our religious rules just don't make sense, and that's the case with the Pharisees. As you dig a little bit deeper, they became so, so focused on the law and making it a burden, they developed their own laws when it came to the Sabbath. In other words, they, they came up with their own laws beyond the command of the Sabbath. And for example, to properly follow the command to rest on the Sabbath and not work, they decided they needed to figure out how many steps you could take on the Sabbath without it becoming work. And they calculated that if you walk beyond 50 steps on the Sabbath, that was work and it violated the law. Another law, you could eat, but you couldn't cook. It was fascinating when we went to Israel. Even now, like we were in and around Jewish people, and it's like they're very, very strict on the Sabbath and their dietary laws and washing and doing this and doing that. Another law to, that they came up with is you could bandage a wounded person, but you couldn't apply medicine. Here's the funniest one. If you were a woman, you couldn't look in the mirror because you might see a gray hair. And if you saw a gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it out. And plucking out a gray hair was considered work. This is one of their most ridiculous rules of all. You cannot carry a load heavier than a dried fig, but if anything weighed half the amount of a dried fig, you could carry it twice. I don't know. Maybe, that, that's, maybe that's Tennessee arithmetic. I don't know. Some, I don't know. Or Kentucky arithmetic. Uh, but Jesus saw through their self-righteousness and he exposed their lack of compassion for the man with the withered hand. I want you to write this down. You see, if we're going to live with compassion... In 2023, it's going to mean this. Compassion, or choose goodness above rules. Compassion always chooses goodness above rules. It's easy to see the lack of compassion in the Pharisees. It's not so easy sometimes to see it in ourselves. Are there preferences and rules and opinions that keep you from helping somebody else? We're living in a culture where a lot is going on. And it would be very easy just to shut down 
and just say, Lord Jesus, come. Because there's so much out there. But everything you see, every sin, every immorality, everything you see of people saying wrong is right and right is wrong, it's a plea for help and for hope that Jesus is the only one can give that person. Following Jesus means living and loving like Jesus. It means living with conviction. It means living with compassion. And then finally, as we look at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it means one other thing. It means that we, we live with courage. Because we, as we look at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, we drop down to verses 5 and 6, man, we see courage on display. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians on how they might kill Jesus. It's interesting here that Jesus responds to the Pharisees, their lack of compassion with anger and distress. You see, that seems like an oxymoron. That just doesn't seem to... to to fit it fits because here's what he's doing he's so compassionate about hurting the helpless and the hopeless that it stirs up a godly righteousness and anger in him when he sees people trying to keep other people from God oftentimes we get angry and we don't get angry because because it's not a, it's not a God, godly anger. But in this case, it's a godly anger. He's grieved. He's provoked because they are so intent on using this guy as a pawn. They're going against the goodness and the grace of God. Because Jesus is always about restoring the fallen. He's always about redeeming the lost. What is so sad is that this continues today. I have the opportunity to to meet leaders and churches all the time. And what I see oftentimes is churches are dying because they no longer have compassion for those who are hurting and helpless and hopeless. They become inward. Their traditions keep them from truly following Jesus. Sometimes our traditions just don't make sense. I love the story of a lady who always cut the ends off her hand before she cooked it. And when someone asked her why she did it, she said, well, that's just what mom always did. And she got to thinking about it, and she called her mom. She said, why do you cut the ends off the hand before you cook it? She said she didn't know either. It was just what her mother did. And then they both got on the phone to grandma and said, grandma, why did you always cut the ends off your hand? She said, it's the only way it would fit in my pan. I've given you a lot of content today, but let me kind of start to land the plane right now. We could go on and on and on. But the seven last words of a dying church are these words. We've never done it that way before. That was the motto of the Pharisees. That's the motto of a dying church. We've never done it that way before. 
We never compromise the message. The message never changes. But the methods always do. And our traditions can sometimes get in the way of what God wants to do in us and through us. It just so happens that each of us, God placed each of us in this culture for such a time as this. And if we're going to follow Jesus closely, it's going to mean this. It means we're going to live with conviction. It means we're going to live with compassion. And it means we're going to live with courage. The courage we see here with Jesus is he's not afraid to do what is right. Outraged the Pharisees. Notice what happens. They're outraged. What did they do in verse 6? After Jesus healed the man. Which, by the way, he just said, stretch out your hand. He didn't do, any, he didn't do anything, but just stretch out your hand. The man was healed. Do you see what the Pharisees did in verse 6? It says, they began to plot against Jesus with the Herodians. Enemies of the Pharisees. That's how intent they were upon killing Jesus. Someone said this, the hypocrisy is obvious. You can't heal a man on the Sabbath, but you can hire a hitman to kill Jesus. That's hypocrisy. And what we learn from Jesus in this example is this, focus on grace above rituals. Chuck Swindoll came out with a book not too long ago called The Grace Awakening. In The Grace Awakening, he talked about how we need to wake up to the grace of God. Many of us know that we're saved by grace, but we don't realize it's important to live by grace. And then he says grace can change your life. It can revolutionize the way you live. And he said this about grace as it comes up on the screen. He says grace releases and affirms. It doesn't smother. Grace values the dignity of individuals. It doesn't destroy. Grace supports and encourages. It isn't jealous or suspicious. What the Pharisees needed that day in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, they needed a grace awakening. I think that's what the church of Jesus Christ needs today is a grace awakening. Where there's not only truth, truth is important, but there's grace. There's grace. Grace means that we live with conviction and compassion and courage. Chuck Lawless wrote something in an article not too long ago that really spoke to me about this idea of following Jesus. He said, when Pam and I lived in Ohio, our neighbor's young son was named Charlie. He said, one day I heard a knock at the door and it was followed by Charlie's voice asking Pam, can Mr. Chuck come out and play? And I had some time, so I agreed to spend some time with this little guy. Charlie was pumped because he had just received a new wiffle ball and a bat. And Charlie said, here's what we do, Mr. Chuck. I'll stand back here, and you throw the ball, and I'll hit it. 
Chuck said, I, I threw the first pitch. Charlie, Charlie swung, and he missed the ball by a foot. He said, I threw the second pitch, and again, Charlie missed. The third pitch was no better. Charlie missed worse than ever. By this point, he was exasperated at me. He picked up the ball, fired it back to me, and yelled in a loud voice, Mr. Chuck, you're doing it wrong. Chuck said, well, what do you mean I'm doing it wrong, Charlie? His answer, Mr. Chuck, you're supposed to be throwing the ball where I'm swinging the bat. <laughs> and and it, it spoke to me because sometimes we treat God that way. God, you're supposed to be pitching the ball where we're swinging the bat. We're willing to follow him as long as he pitches the ball where we want to swing the bat. It doesn't work that way. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to, be, it's going to mean adjusting. How do you adjust this morning so you can follow Jesus more closely? How do you adjust your convictions? How do you adjust your compassion? How do you adjust your courage? One of the guys that I've followed for a long time in terms of someone that really follows Jesus, not perfect, but someone that really follows Jesus. And so people put this person down a lot because he follows Jesus. They even at times call him corny or, or cheesy, but he continues to follow Jesus courageously. His name? Tim Tebow. And here's what he said. He said, when you die, there's going to be a tombstone. It's going to have your name. It's going to have the year you're born and the day you die. In between, there's going to be a dash. And that dash is going to represent everything you did in your life, good and bad. That's how you're remembered. What do you want your dash to rep represent? I think it's a good way to close this morning. When we come to the end of our life, what's our legacy going to be? What's the dash look like between being born and dying? For believers, we know that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. So it's wonderful. But at the same time, there's a stewardship to the dash. How are you spending your dash? May I encourage you this morning to spend it following Jesus more closely in 2023. Have you decided to follow Jesus in 2023? If you've never trusted the Lord, if you've never started following Jesus, may today be the day for those in person and those online. It's just a simple step of faith and crying out to the Lord for forgiveness. And trusting him. A really important question for each believer here today is this. What are your soundtracks for 2023? Let me give you one. How about this? Following Jesus means living and loving like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this window into your word. There's so much here, Lord. And yet, Lord, as we, as we look closely, we see 
a day in the life of Jesus. We see him living with conviction and compassion and courage. Lord, help us to do that today. Lord, as we take these notes and as we take our journals, as we discuss this with our small groups, and as we journal daily, Lord, would you help us to live and love like Jesus. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me now as we sing. And as always, it's an opportunity to respond to God in various ways. As we sing, as we come to the altar, as we pray. Uh, if you're in need of prayer today, you want someone to pray with you, I'd love to pray with you. You come as we sing.